just gets crazy <laughs> really quickly. Like, if you think things have been wacky till now, like, just wait. It gets, it gets so... In the next several days to a week or so, we're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that because the mitigation is actually working. He's like, I want to see the world. And the guy's like, look over the tap rail. That's as much of the world as you're going to see. Well, the ship is covered in bones. Um, the captain is nowhere to be found, and everyone seems to say he's crazy. But, like, this should be fine. The past couple of weeks have been really rough for my mental health. I know some of you guys are out there struggling, too. When I am quite free of my present engagements, I am going to treat myself to a ride and a visit to you. Have ready a bottle of brandy, because I always feel like drinking that heroic drink when we talk ontological heroics together. If this podcast can provide you any solace and distraction um, by thinking of the sea, the journeys we want to take, the journeys that might be too arduous to take. This is tough. People are suffering. People are dying. It's inconvenient from a societal standpoint, from an economic standpoint to go through this. But this is going to be the answer to our problems want everyone to stay in their own personal Lennox and have God grant them long life, but I swear there's many a person, yourself included, with whom I w wish to have a bottle of brandy and some ontological heroics. So let's all pull together and make sure as we look forward to the next 30 days, we do it with all the intensity and force that we can. Please let me know on the Twitter what you'd like to hear, what you'd like to see. And I'm with you, keeping you company as we're all in our little whale boats through the sea. Moby Dick energy, big Moby Dick energy. I want that Moby Dick, I want that energy. I want that Moby Dick energy, big Moby Dick energy. I want that empty, that Moby Dick energy. I want that Moby Dick energy, big Moby Dick energy. Hello, and welcome to Moby Dick Energy, a podcast where we analyze Herman Melville's 1851 queer whaling masterpiece, Moby Dick. I'm your host, Talia Laven, and every week I'm joined by an assortment of incredible guests. Um, and this week I'm joined by one of my very old friends. Uh, we met, uh, we were in a stand-up comedy club together in college. She is the humor columnist for the Washington Post and one of my favorite people, Alexandra Petri. Hello. Hello. It's a, it's a delight to be in a whaling boat with you. Yeah. Well, so, uh, Alex, you were the first person that really told me about your love of Herman Melville, your Melville slash Hawthorne literary OTP, um, this was very influential on me. Oh, this is, a, as uh, John Kasich would say, it's a mosaic of moments in time, for sure. And, like, I, I had the Sims, as I think many people of goodwill do during their high school years, and I built, like, a little household for Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne to share and uh, but then Herman Melville aged on a bad day, and so he became immediately very decrepit, and it was just a nightmare for them. It really was some rough times that the Hallmel household went through. So uh, and because it like auto saves on the day when you age, and so you're stuck permanently in like a bad mood, which seems like a downside of The Sims as a concept. But yeah, no, I I was very into this. I wrote like a play. It turns out I also wrote a short story in the style of you know like Oscar Wilde's like very. Uh, here's my conspiracy theory about who the sonnets were really addressed to, like the portrait of Willie Hughes, where he's like, there's really punning in all of these sonnets, and whoever has to wish thou hast thy will, that's the name of the guy in the sonnets they're all addressed to. I wrote a cover of that, but about my theory about Moby Dick and also like this cane that I found in Herman Melville's bed that I was very obsessed with. Anyway, it's a wild, wild world out there, and unfortunately, most of this is preserved in my uh, hard drive to this day, so... I guess get excited? I don't know. Yeah, we're going to be... Uh, so after we analyze the very exciting and uh, 
and frankly, a pretty remarkable chapter 16, we are going to be doing some readings from a play Alex wrote in 10th grade uh, called Unattainable Felicity, um, a romance between Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville. So get hyped for that. The stage directions are very elaborate. Perhaps too elaborate. Well, listen, you know, I think I just want to stand up, like I stand. At 15, I was like, you know, busy trying to teach myself French through poetry. Like, you know, nerdy. (laughs) Yes. Like nerdy teens are real. And if any nerdy teens are listening to this, we support you. Um, It's never been time to be a nerd. Um, in history. It's true. We're in a renaissance of something. Uh, or maybe a naissance. We're in a time period for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all living through... It's weird to be living through a world historical event. Um, I think it's, you know, it's also weird to think about, like, what am I contributing to society at this time? And, like, there are other things I'm trying to do with, like, mutual aid and raising some money for masks and stuff, but on the other hand, if I can help someone forget how horrible things are, you know, and just bask in whaledom and queerness for an hour a week, then that's better than nothing, right? Exactly. I mean, like, I like getting the print newspaper every day because it includes, like, actual news stories that are t- telling people what's going on so they can help solve the crisis in real time, but it also includes the comics. And it's nice to have like, here's a little capsule of sort of confusing joy. Uh, I love the print comics personally, even though they're in this strange hermetically sealed bubble off from the world. That's kind of like, like they've been doing Beetle Bailey. They sit at Camp Swampy since like 1940, maybe even earlier. Who knows? They might've like missed both world wars at Camp Swampy. And it's remarkable. And I, I thank them for that. No, it's oh, hey, we found a cockroach. Very exciting. What's up? Maybe just a large beetle. Oh, a, a large insect of some kind, possibly a cockroach, possibly another sort of insect is now here with me. And that's just great. And, you know, it's, it's good to see life forms. Yeah, it's great. I'm handling, helping care for some toddler life forms. Um, and one day I can, I hope to tell them. Yes, while we were all on coronavirus lockdown and your mom sent you away, um, you know, I was um, talking about gay whalers in in the closet. So you can have it all. We're all riding out this moment in history as best we can. So speaking of which, um, uh, let's turn our attention to Chapter 16, The Ship. Let's dive into The Ship, yeah which aptly introduces us to the Pequod, the titular ship on, um, on which we will be spending the rest of the voyage um, of Moby Dick. And uh, of course, it's funny to me, this is our 11th episode. This is the 16th chapter. And finally, we are on the ship, I would say. <laughs> and we don't even meet Captain Ahab yet. Yeah, we get a little foretaste of the Ahab feast to come, but we don't actually meet or see him. We meet two other different substitute captains who are not, in fact, Ahab. Yeah, so, so Alex, uh, do you think you could do your best to give a very bare-bones plot summary of this chapter for our faithful listeners? Sure thing. So, basically, uh, Ishmael and Queequeg, uh, Queequeg has consulted Yojo, uh, his god, who has told him that what they should do is just have Ishmael go and whatever ship appeals to him the most, that's going to be the ship that they ought to be on. And so Ishmael wanders off and he sees some other ships that also have interesting names like Titbit and Devil Dam, but then the Pequod really sparks his interest and uh, he observes it and then he encounters what he thinks is the captain, but it turns out not to be. There's like two fake captains. Uh, First he encounters Peleg or Peleg and then uh, Bildad, great Old Testament name, and he signs up. And they try to sort of stiff him. In fact, they do sort of hornswoggle, I believe, if that's the term I want him out of his share on the boat. Oh, the insect is on my arm. It's fine. I got rid of it. And then uh, after he signs up for his low, low share, he's like, maybe I should see the captain. And they're like, 
let me tell you about the captain. He's totally fine. There was this incident, like a, a big incident. He lost maybe a leg. He seems like he's going through some stuff. He's totally fine. It's like probably better, in fact, to have my favorite line in the chapter, a uh, moody good captain than a laughing bad one. So be reassured. And he goes off and he's like, I was reassured, mostly. <laughs> and that's sort of the event. Yeah, that's the chapter. Um, like, so... Bildad and Peleg are the Quaker co-owners of the ship. Um, you know, in Nantucket at the time, according to the book I've been reading in the Heart of the Sea, basically Nantucketers would like invest in whaling ships. Um, you know, they would have small shares um, in a, numer a number of whale ships. It was basically their stock market. And then they could get, you know, shares of whatever... Um, you know, whatever the haul of whale oil was on the return. Um, and of course, these were somewhat risky investments because at the time, you know, you're talking about two to three year voyages in great peril. Um, but, you know, the possibility of reward was strong because spermacetti, whale oil, um, was such a high value and economically necessary uh, item it still kind of boggles my mind that so much of American capitalism was literally like going out into the Pacific ocean and stabbing whales. But yeah, I suppose capitalism has just concealed some of its barbarism behind sanitized packages. Um, and now there's, I guess less whale stabbing um, in general. But yeah, no, the amount of violence impacted that, it, it, I, this made me think of the thing from the very beginning in like the list of extracts, because Daniel Webster gives this whole speech about how like there's 8,000 people, 8,000 or 9,000 persons living here in the sea who add largely every year to the national wealth by the boldest and most persevering industry. And so it's like a tiny group of people and they're producing all of this stuff. They're like, but they literally have to go out and just kill, a, physically kill an enormous beast of the sea in this tremendously dramatic fashion just to like light your lamps. And, that that would just be economy. It's wild. Yeah, no, shit's absolutely crazy. And um and so uh there's this discussion of um, you know, extensive discussion of basically these these Quakers are sort of trying to cheat Ishmael out the like the way that whalers were paid, like, um was th they wouldn't receive any wages up front. They would receive instead what's called a lay, which is their amount of the sort of net proceeds. And the more dangerous your job and the more experienced you are, the bigger your lay is. So um, Ishmael says, and you know, I'm a green hand. In other words, like I've only shipped out on merchant ships. I've never been on a whaler before. So he knows he's going to get a smaller share. Um and so he winds up with a 300th share of the profits of the Pequod. Which is less than he expects. Yeah. Well, no, that's what he winds up with. He, he, he expects like a, a 200th, but the salty and avaricious Quakers yeah. sort of pull this fast one on him where they're like, well, we'll give you the 777th lay. And he's like, um, and they're like, oh, well, we're, you know, they do like a good cop, bad cop. And Peleg's like, we'll get him the 300th lay. And he's like, okay. Um, and apparently this is fairly accurate that like Quaker owners, despite the sort of, it's an interesting thing, despite Quakerism has, having this reputation for humility, uh, apparently Nantucket whaler owners were like very widely known for being extremely hard driving and extremely uh, avaricious when it came to profit. So um, that's sort of neither here nor there. It's just a, an interesting history fact. And we also get some good punning on the word lay because there's Captain Bildad who's reading from his Bible about lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth. And Melville's really keen to sort of bang home the point that he's sitting here reading his Bible and somehow managing also to feel his fair share out from underneath him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shall not lay up many lays here below where moss and rust do corrupt. Uh, so a good well, I mean, solid pun action. 
of piety obscuring greed or lack of virtue certainly not timeless in any way i mean we, we've never seen people who are outwardly pious and do monstrous things that's crazy what are you talking about um sorry that was a joke i don't know it's um, anyway uh so I think it is significant that Ishmael is the one to make this ill-fated choice. Like, Queequeg's like, you do it. Like, basically, my God is telling me to do a kind of um, day of prayer and, like, I trust you. And so Ishmael goes out and makes this sort of dun-dun-dun, like, very ill-fated choice. Um, I mean, Queequeg has entrusted a lot to someone who self-admittedly doesn't know jack shit about whaling. Um, but... You know, um, to me, it's somehow, it, it is interesting that, it's like, I don't know that I would send out a guy with a death wish to pick my dangerous site of employment. Like, I wonder how this book would have played out if they had been on the titbit instead. Yeah, or the devil dam. Just because the name is bad doesn't mean necessarily. Plus, like, Queequeg's the one who has previous whaling experience, and they would have definitely gotten a better lay if they'd had somebody who would say, hey, I've, got, I've killed more whales than I can count, and I'm here to bargain and advocate for myself uh, with Ishmael in tow. Although, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think the two of them could have made a stronger bargaining pair, so it, I'm sad that the holidays didn't work out in such a way that they could have done so. Yeah, it's just kind of like, you know, I don't know that that... Queequeg made the best choice in trusting this fateful decision to Ishmael, but I guess new love blinds us to many things. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great conferring of responsibility, for sure. Um, so, thinking about it, um, so, uh, I had, so there are some, also some great lines about the Nantucket Quakers. Um, yeah. That are some of my favorite. So, and, and that also talk about the sort of um, the unique nature of Nantucket whaling Quaker culture. Um, the island was basically primarily Quaker, uh, according to In the Heart of the Sea, basically because one, like, early female resident had a ton of influence, and she personally liked a Quaker, uh, one Quaker preacher who came on, and then everyone was a Quaker. So, um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, go here, I guess. So, yeah, um, there's this line. Uh, now, Bildad, like Peleg, and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect. That's not accurate, by the way, but close enough. <laughs> and to this day, its inhabitants in general retain an uncommon measure, in an uncommon measure, the peculiarities of the Quaker. Only variously and anonymously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same, same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. <laughs> I love that. I also, like, sanguinary keeps coming up when they talk about Bildad. Like, later on the next page, uh, he was saying that though refusing from conscientious scruples to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of leviathan gore. How now in the contemplative evening of his days the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence, I do not know. But it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing, and this practical world quite another. This world pays dividends. Oh yeah, crap, I forgot the punchline. No, I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm just adding, we're just riffing, we're talking. I've, I mean, Alex and I have been friends for ages, I remember... Uh, a certain show uh, in the stand-up comedy club, uh, the undergrad club, uh, where um, where uh, Alex dressed as Jabba the Hutt um, in a giant inflatable costume and did her entire show in Jabba the Hutt groans with subtitles. Huttese, technically. <laughs> I don't really speak very good Huttese. I read it a lot better than I speak it. Um, well, it's just, it's you, me, the cockroach, our old friendship. There are a lot of presents, uh, uh, you know, presences in this. No, I was remembering how you, they had like, so the house where you were living in college, they had this thing for like 
secret Santa where people would try to do really nifty things to you. I was going through my old emails and looking, and one of the things was like you wanted people to perform for you. And apparently, uh, Nelson, the co-president, and I did like some sort of dining hall performance where we like serenaded or with comedy in some way. And we genuinely have no recollection of what we did or said, but apparently it was good. And then also someone brought you sushi. Yeah, no, uh, Kirkland uh, uh, Secret Santa was very extra. Um, the funniest thing was that my Secret Santa one year, like, got my key from my college boyfriend and decorated my entire room with pictures of Aragorn, um, son of Arathorn, who was my sort of first love. And later... Oh, yeah, school- at least 40 of them. Yeah, and... and- and later, a high school friend came to visit and was like, huh, so you're still, like, this into Lord of the Rings. And I was just, like, I had to be like, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> like <laughs> This was a gift, yes. <laughs> like, the least plausible thing imaginable, being like, no, I didn't decorate my room of, with 40 pictures of Aragorn. Um, but yes, I think it, in, it that, that performance culminated in either you or Nelson handing me a plate of ham. Um, So that was cool. Anyway, I was just trying to say we're bantering, we're old buddies. Um, We're both weird nerds from a long time. So at any rate, um, going back to the chapter. So I wonder if you could introduce, uh, you could read the, 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 or uh, there are like two, paragraphs where we read the description of the the Pequod itself so um or there's one paragraph so I'm gonna read that out loud because this is the ship where we're gonna spend uh the rest of our journey and there's so many cool allusions in this paragraph yeah no this is very so so let's read it and then jaw it over huh okay let's do it Uh, So, you may have seen many a quaint craft in your day, for aught I know. Square-toed luggers, mountainous Japanese junks, butterbox galleots and whatnot. But take my word for it, you never saw such a rare old craft as this same rare old Pequod. She was a ship of the old school, rather small, if anything, with an old-fashioned claw-footed look about her. Long-seasoned and weather-stained in the typhoons and calms of all four oceans, Her old hull's complexion was darkened like a French grenadier's who was alike fought in Egypt and Siberia. Her venerable bows looked bearded. Her masts cut somewhere on the coast of Japan where her original ones were lost overboard in a gale. Her masts stood stiffly up like the spines of the three old kings of Cologne. Her ancient decks were worn and wrinkled like the pilgrim-worshipped flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral where Beckett bled. But all these, her old antiquities, were added new and marvelous features pertaining to the wild business that for more than half a century she had followed. Old Captain Peleg, many years her chief mate, before he commanded another vessel of his own, and now a retired seaman, and one of the principal owners of the Pequod, this old Peleg, during the term of his chief mateship, had built upon her original grotesqueness and inlaid it all over with a quaintness both of material and device, unmatched by anything except it be Thorkel Hake's carved buckler or bedstead. She was apparelled like any barbaric Ethiopian, Ethiopian emperor, his neck heavy with pendants of polished ivory. She was a thing of trophies, a cannibal of a craft, tricking herself forth in the chaste bones of her enemies. All round her unpaneled open bulwarks were garnished like one continuous jaw with the long, sharp teeth of the sperm whale, inserted therefore pins to fasten her old hempen thews and tendons to. These thews ran not through base blocks of landwood, but deftly traveled over sheaves of sea ivory. Scorning a turnstile wheel at her reverend helm, she sported there a tiller, and that tiller was in one mass curiously carved from the long lower jaw of her hereditary foe. The helmsman who steered by that tiller in a tempest felt like the Tartar when he holds back his fiery steed by clutching its jaw. A noble craft, but somehow a most melancholy. All noble things are touched with that. So, yeah. It's yeah. with whale bones. No, but it's also, 
I, I was struck by too the combination of the whale bones and these old relics, these like religious relics from previous times, because uh, we've got the the three old kings of Cologne, which is sort of like a tribute to the Magi. They had some sort of apparently a big statue or chapel in Cologne. And then you have the flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral where Beckett fled, which I was just reading uh, Erasmus's pilgrimage for religion's sake. And apparently, A, like all of the weird sort of reliquary areas were completely ridiculous back in the day and only got sort of progressively more so. Like he visited, there was like the congealed milk of the Virgin Mary and he saw some of the clay from which God made Adam. That was an actual claim that they were making somewhere. Um, and so the Beckett stone, like they all, in addition to the place where he was killed, which you could sort of see if you went up some steps, they had like all of this gold and various things. And Erasmus was like, well, you know, Beckett would have liked it if we gave these away to the poor. Would that be cool? Because I feel like like he could pretend that people were borrowing it and he'd given them the license that everyone got very cold and turned him away. Um, but no, so I was, it was funny to see Canterbury coming up here, but it's this interesting sort of fusion of old world and uh, kind of, these religious, these pilgrimage-themed places with the sort of gory errand. I mean, it's very classically Melvillian sort of um, these sort of frenetic, manic allusions, um, you know, all over this paragraph. You know, we have, we have Egypt, we have Siberia, we have Cologne, we have Thomas Beckett and Canterbury we Cathedral. Have Japan. Yeah, we have Japan, we have Someone named Thorkel Hake, who I probably should have Googled. Um, <laughs> Me too. We have, oh, oh, well, I guess this knowledge is lost to time. Um, and probably no one will correct me about it on Twitter. So, yeah. Um, it's interesting. It's like it's the world itself, but it also is going on a pilgrimage itself kind of towards a whale. Well, also, I feel like the sort of frenetic nature of the um, the illusions sort of... Um, kind of masks almost the absolute insanity of what Melville is describing, which is a ship that's like literally just adorned and covered in whale bones and whose tiller is made of a sperm whale's jaw. Like, that's wild. <laughs> like, I don't think that that, I think that's more symbolic than necessarily accurate of Nantucket craft of the period, but it is very symbolic that like, Basically, what Melville is trying to tell us is, like, you cannot extricate whaling from what whaling is, which is death. It's murder. It's, like, the struggle to the death. And so, literally, this craft is adorned with the bones of its hereditary enemy. No, I think you're totally right. I think, like, the, the all the allusions and descriptions are actually pulling us away from what we're seeing rather than, like, making it more transparent to us. They're sort of, like, throwing up all of these bales where, like, this is a body. This is a whale's body. Yeah, although, I mean, I think the Beckett illusion, you know, brings us back to murder. Thomas Beckett being the the famous sort of, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest, um, sort of religious martyr. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our archetypal re religious martyr saint type, uh, unless I'm missing something. Is that No, that strikes me as correct. Yeah, um, okay, and now I'm annoyed, so I'm going to look up historical hake um but so yeah do you have any more thoughts uh on uh on, on the paragraph any more and do you have any favorite passages that you that really stuck out to you from this i'd love also uh pretty much everything that they yell at ishmael I, like, there's some good comedy in the dialogue in this section, which is getting us a little bit away from the boat. But uh, I have a, a friend who's extremely grammatical. That's sort of her. She's got like tattoos of punctuation marks. She's like known for her sticklerism with grammar. And so you can tell that it's only in moments of absolute abject terror or anxiety that she ever sort of breaks ranks grammatically. And one time uh, her car got towed. And, like after a series of sort of confusions and this guy pulls up in a tow truck and he's like, uh, sorry, uh, he don't deal with that kind of thing. And she goes, he don't in like a terrified tone. And that reminded me of what Ishmael does with, cause he's so nervous being the Quaker and Bildad says in a hollow tone, uh, he says, he's our man, Bildad said Peleg. He wants to ship Dosti, said Bildad in a hollow tone and turning around to me, 
I dust, said I unconsciously. He was so intense a Quaker. Uh, I just like nervous Ishmael slipping into his formal deeds and vows. I also love the thing that... I feel like that's super relatable, just like adopting someone's tone of speech because you're socially anxious. Um, And they're like, are you imitating me? And it's like, ah, I'm sorry, I'm just weird. You know, I panicked. I'm not actually from the South. I'm so sorry that I said howdy back to you. Um, So uh, apparently Thorkel Haith is a weird, like, sort of anglicization of the Viking... Thorkel Haki, the braggart, um, who was a Viking described in uh, the Icelandic saga Njal's saga, who is said to have had his exploits carved above his bed closet and on a chair in front of his high seat. So, um, yeah, so we have Vikings in there, too. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. We've been around the world just describing what's on this boat. Yeah. Ship. Ship. Sorry, apologies to the ship. I mean, well, this is the pod, right? I feel like that's so apt in that it's like, it is both sort of an avatar of death and also an avatar of the cosmopolitanism that we've been remarking upon as sort of showing itself in all these whaling communities in the relationship between Queequeg and Ishmael in the descriptions of Nantucket and New Bedford. Like, that whaling is both sort of a struggle between you know, life and death between the elements and man. And then also um, it is sort of a means to see the world and a means for the people of the world to commingle. Um, and so... Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, just... Uh, so it's, I think it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it also, like, it bears the name of the uh, indigenous uh, tribe, uh, who is now extinct, and that's also sort of hanging over it, I think, uh, which is sort of, in addition to it being made of the bones of the whale, the name is the name of people who have been removed from where they were. And I, that's something that Melville, I think, is thinking about. Yeah, no, like, indigenous genocide also hangs over America and Nantucket and whaling um, in general. Uh, and Forgive me if I'm wrong, but weren't the Pequod's uh, tribe that Hawthorne wrote about as well? I've, I've sort of uh, seen claims that maybe this is a sneaky allusion to, or a sneaky like sort of shout out to Melville's Bay Hawthorne. I can neither confirm nor deny. I don't. Uh... Well, you and I are both like big Melville Hawthorne shippers, so I'm going to go with yes, it is true, one hundred percent. It's got to be, got to be a shout out. Yeah. Right. So. Um, the other thing is, I thought, you know, while we're doing the chapter discussion, we could read out loud basically three paragraphs of the chapter. So what we learn is yeah. that, and this apparently was very accurate, basically, the ca- because there was so little time between sea voyages, like, the sort of Nantucket way of life was that people would be, like, male sailors would be away for, like, three years, see their wives and kids for maybe 60 days and then ship out again. Um, so the captain of a boat would often sort of arrive like well after the crew um, and sort of be the last to show up. And Ahab does have a wife. So he's taking a little more shore leave. He's not there yet on the ship. So he's still, in case there hasn't been enough foreshadowing in these 16 chapters, we have a little more. Um, so, so we, you know, so he's not there. And, and, and then Ishmael turns back to the ship owner, Peleg, and basically asks, like, hey, what's, what's, up with the, what's up with the captain? Would maybe like to know a little bit more about him before he's my boss for three years. Um, and so I wonder if you could read the paragraph starting, but I don't think thou wilt be able to. Sure thing. But I don't think thou wilt be able to at present, that is, see him. I don't know exactly what's the matter with him, but he keeps clothes inside the house, a sort of sick, and yet he don't look so. In fact, he ain't sick, but no, he isn't well either. Anyhow, young man, he won't always see me, so I don't suppose he will be. He's a queer man, Captain Ahab, so some think, but a good one. Oh, thou'lt like him well enough, no fear, no fear. He's a grand, ungodly, godlike man, Captain Ahab. Doesn't speak much. But when he does speak, then you may well listen. Mark ye, be forewarned. Ahab's above the common. Ahab's been in colleges. 
as well as among the cannibals, been used to deeper wonders in the waves, fixed his fiery lance in mightier, stranger foes than whales. His lance, ay, the keenest and the surest, that, out of all our isles. Oh, he ain't Captain Bildad, no, and he ain't Captain Peleg, he's Ahab, boy. And Ahab of old, thou knowest, was a crowned king, and a very vile one. When that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? Come hither to me. Oh, yeah, go ahead, go. So this is Ishmael referencing the fact that Ahab is, uh, you know, Ahab in the, the Old Testament was indeed a wicked king who, um, through his idolatry and association with his wife Jezebel, um, yes, wound up like dying in ignominy with dogs licking his blood. So everything's a good sign. But anyway, not only dogs licking his blood, but also according to uh, the, I was looking at First Kings. Uh, they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. The dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. And then Ahab's kids get all the bad stuff that was promised to Ahab. So that's the Bible is really going hard in this passage. Yeah. Um, Come hither to me, hither, hither, said Peleg, with a significance in his eye that almost startled me. Look ye, lad, never say that on board the Pequod, never say it anywhere. Captain Ahab did not name himself. "'Twas a foolish, ignorant whim of his crazy widowed mother, who died when he was only a twelve-month old. And yet the old squaw, Tistig, at Gayhead, said the name would somehow prove prophetic. And perhaps other fools like her may tell thee the same. I wish to warn thee, it's a lie. I know Captain Ahab well. I've sailed with him as mate years ago. I know what he is, a good man. Not a pious good man like Bildad, but a swearing good man. Something like me, only there's a good deal more of him. Aye, aye, I know that he was never very jolly, and I know that on the passage home he was a little out of his mind for a spell. But it was the sharp shooting pains in his bleeding stump that brought that about, as anyone might see. I know, too, that ever since he lost his leg last voyage by that accursed whale, he's been a kind of moody, desperate moody, and savage sometimes. But that will all pass off. And once for all, let me tell thee and assure thee, young man, it's better to sail with a moody good captain than a laughing bad one. So goodbye to thee, and wrong not Captain Ahab, because he happens to have a wicked name. Besides, my boy, he has a wife, not three voyages wed wedded, a sweet, resigned girl. Think of that, by that sweet girl, that old man has a child. Hold ye, then, uh, there can be any utter har hopeless harm in Ahab? No, no, my lad, stricken, blasted if ye be. Ahab his, has his humanities. And could you read the last paragraph? As I walked away, I was full of thoughtfulness. What had been incidentally revealed to me of Captain Ahab filled me with a certain wild vagueness of painfulness concerning him. And somehow at the time, I felt a sympathy and a sorrow for him, but for I don't know what, unless it was the cruel loss of his leg. And yet I also felt a strange awe of him, but that sort of awe which I cannot at all describe was not exactly awe. I do not know what it was, but I felt it. And it did not disincline me toward him, though I felt impatience at what seemed like mystery in him, so imperfectly as he was known to me then. However, my thoughts were at length carried in other directions, so that for the present, dark Ahab slipped my mind. Yeah, like, so you're, you're about to sign up for, again, these are two to three year voyages. Your captain's leadership is, like, pretty much the difference between life and death. And what you know, this is your, like, hey, what's my boss like? And it's like, well, he's crazy, but, you know, it's mostly because a leg bit, a whale bit off his leg, and uh, he's probably sick in the head. Don't worry, he has a sweet, resigned wife. Sweet, resigned wife. I love. Yeah, they really buried the lead on Captain Ahab throughout this. They're like, yeah, just... It, although earlier he does shout about his leg being bitten off by a whale, the most monstrous parmacetti that ever chipped a boat, uh, uh, specifically, that, that sort of a whale. But... Yeah, he's got a widowed mother. There's a squaw making predictions. There's all kinds of really juicy, foreboding content that we're now having dumped on us in the last three paragraphs of this chapter. Uh, as Ishmael wanders off and I guess decides not to worry about it. Yeah, no, Ishmael's like, huh, well, the ship is covered in bones. Um, the captain is nowhere to be found, and everyone seems to say he's crazy. Um but, like, this should be fine. I'm definitely bringing my best friend slash lover here. Um, so Ishmael, once again, 
sort of, I mean, I don't think he's necessarily an unreliable narrator, but like, I wouldn't necessarily trust him with sort of decisions of great significance. And, um, you know, uh, he's like, well, I mean, he is new to whaling. So maybe he's just like, I guess all whalers are insane. And yeah, maybe this is the temperament of a natural whaler. Maybe this is how you have to be in order to go and look the Leviathan in the eye and stick a spear down his throat when called upon. But like, if you, I feel like this is almost a moment of unintentional comedy. Like you could just do this verbatim and it would be like a hilarious sketch of like, should I get on this whale boat or not? And it's like, here's an, an old salty sea captain and he's giving you exactly this information. I, I feel like, you don't need any uh, no. to the foolish, ignorant whim of his crazy, widowed mother to name him this ill-fated biblical name. But don't worry, he's fine. He's yeah. I it's it's really a lot, and I, I appreciate its muchness. Yeah, no, there's a lot of sort of tasty old Old Testament allusions, and I think this is accurate in that um, Quakers do tend to uh, or did tend to have like sort of very old-fashioned Old Testament names, but the specific names Bildad and Peleg are interesting. Bildad is, in the book of Job, um, one of the sort of three friends of Job who come to him and say, you know, like, basically, we don't believe you that you're blameless. Like, why would God visit so much suffering on someone who had done nothing wrong? Like, he commits this sort of minor blasphemy. He He's, like, sort of an example of of foolishness and um and I think you did the the background on Peleg so Peleg I do know it shares a uh, the name Peleg shares a root with the Hebrew word haflaga sailing so um you know there is that linguistic element but Peleg in the bible I, can you let can you tell us who that was I think he just lived to be somewhat old and was uh he was 237 is what is the number I'm remembering, but I, let me look him up again because I don't want to pour lies about Peleg into people's ears that will cause them to like be like, oh, yes, it was a wonderful, beautiful illusion and very fitting. And, and it turns out that I'm puffing out of my uh, pipe incorrectly. Yeah. Stick that Peleg in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah. Oh, 239, apparently. Yeah. And he, he lived to be super old. And he was an ancestor of the Israelites. That's that's all that I know. So yeah. So beyond the sort of implicit Hebrew sailing illusion, I don't think there's a ton that's like sort of directly linked here. And it might just be that Melville thought the name sounded funny. Um, but you know, don't ever accuse this podcast of going light on over analysis um, of everything. <laughs> Yeah, so this is just, it's a very wacky, it, it's a very wacky intro to the boat that will serve as sort of the stage for, um, I would say the rest of the book becomes much more, like, like up till now, it's been sort of a New England book, um, where we've had chapters on things like, like Nantucket and fish chowder and, and everything. And, and once we hit the sea, like shit just gets crazy <laughs> really quickly, like, if you think things have been wacky till now, like just wait, it gets it gets so bananas. It gets full Shakespearean. Like I also like the go one piece of good advice that he gets before getting on. He's like, I want to see the world, and the guy's like, Look over the taff rail. That's as much of the world as you're going to see. You'll be seeing the same exact view of just uninterrupted ocean all the way around Cape Horn. Is that of interest to you? Which seems correct, um, but. It does does not dissuade our protagonist or our narrator, I guess. I'm not sure. I think protagonist might be strong. Yeah, yeah. Well, our yeah, our sort of proxy at any rate. Um, yeah, it is. It's still interesting to me. Like, I think I keep thinking back to chapter one and how we have, you know, what is Ishmael's impetus for getting on a whaler is this dual impulse of sort of um, he has a death wish. And he also believes that water and meditation are wedded forever. And so in a sense, like he's not wrong in that, like, yeah, like being, being in a, on a very dangerous ship and like, like basically confined to a view of the ocean, like doesn't entirely um, sort of diss 
uh, like not adhere with his wishes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it concentrates the mind wonderfully, as they say. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, just, I just want to make a note of sort of. Um, there was one more line that I really loved before we sort of move on to talking about uh, the un the unattainable felicity. Uh, but um, there, um, let me find it. Um, mortal disease. Oh yeah. Okay. So there's this random. There's this paragraph where he's talking about the scriptural names of Quakers, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's talking about basically who makes for a great whaling captain. Um, there, yes. so, there are instances among them, meaning the Quakers of Nantucket, of men who named with scripture names a singularly common fashion on the island and in childhood naturally imbibing the stately dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom still from the audacious, daring, and boundless adventure of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these unoutgrown peculiarities a thousand bold dashes of character, not unworthy a Scandinavian sea king or a poetical pagan Roman. And when these things unite in a man of greatly superior natural force with a globular brain and a ponderous heart, who has also, by the stillness and seclusion of long night watches in the remotest waters, and beneath constellations never seen here in the North, been led to think untraditionally and independently, receiving all nature's sweet or savage impressions fresh from her own virgin, voluntary, and confiding breast, and thereby briefly, uh, chiefly, but with some help from accidental advantages, to learn a bold and nervous lofty language, that man makes one in a whole nation census, a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies. Nor will it at all distract from, uh, detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances, he have what seems a half-willful, overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men tragically great are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O oh young ambition. All mortal greatness is but disease. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, that's just wildness. All mortal greatness is but disease. Like, morbidness is what makes you great. I mean, that's some chewy philosophy to, to feast on. What do you think? It, it is very chewy. I feel like it almost veers towards sort of this autobiographical thing that where he keeps saying, well, I'm going to the sea because I'm feeling like really at the end of my rope. I'm going to the uh, like the ship itself has this melancholy. He can see like all great things are tinged with melancholy. And this is the sort of captain version of that, where it's like all men great are made through, so through a certain morbidness. And it's both like, it's funny because it's presented so dramatically that it doesn't feel like he's saying it's necessarily negative that people become great through having this. He's just sort of, he, for him, it's sort of a fact of life, which I feel like is sort of the kind of dramatical attitude that he's taking towards all of this. Which, well, dramatic. How dare you? Yeah, th th this guy. But I think he almost sort of forgets what he's talking about. And then he says, oh, but as yet we don't have, of course, I'm not talking about this. That's a different story. We're going to be dealing with a slightly different guy who doesn't have exactly what's going on with him. That's a, from another phase of the Quaker modified by individual circumstances. But yeah, there's, but the idea that there's something sort of melancholiness and morbidness or what fits you for these adventures. I feel like that runs through everything. And it, whether it's accurate or not, it's certainly the underlying, un undergirding whalebone beneath the keel, she said, hoping that was an accurate boat part. Yeah, well, you know, uh, frankly, I, <laughs> although I romanticize the sea, um, quite a bit. The thought of like sort of being out of sight of land is a little bit claustrophobic and terrifying to me. All of which is to say, I don't know jack shit about nautical stuff, and that sounds very, um, very accurate to me. Um, in the folk soul, and the tap rail, brain. Yeah. Um. So let's veer hard to leeward. Uh, and let's talk about. I think we're going to do a dramatic reading to sort of cap off the so well i think yes 
I can I can give us an intro sort of, or you can give us an intro, or we can both talk at once in a dramatical, uh, in ontological. We can have about a bout of ontological uh, something or other. All cross talk is but morbid greatness. No, I, yeah. I mean, so I think we're we have a, a pretty significant chapter here. Um, of course, because this is Moby Dick, we won't actually meet Captain Ahab for another little bit. Um, but we're going to be on the ship. Um, we are going to be a whaling. Um, and there's plenty more to come, which is a quote from an earlier chapter. And um, and so just, just to sort of give you a little taste of sweet delight, my sweet friends, um, we've uncovered uh, an ancient text which is a play that Alex wrote um, in 10th grade called Unattainable Felicity, which is um, a very beautifully stage-directioned romance between Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville. Um, and so we were going to maybe read some, some excerpts aloud to you for your, for your delectation and delight. Delectation was exactly the word I was hoping you would go for. Um... No, it's funny also sort of going through rereading Moby Dick because I'm like looking at, I'm using my old copy, which is a vintage Everyman, Everyman's Library edition. And it, the dedication says to Alexandra upon her graduation from the eighth grade. And I remember very precisely where I was when I read it, which is I was at volleyball camp, but I was a day camper. And so I would like not be sleeping there. And so I would come and sit in the lobby of the building with my copy of Moby Dick, which I would take from my volleyball bag, and I would sit there reading that during lunch. And understandably, I had few friends, and so I was able to channel that later into a full 28-page, according to word count, 11,388-word play. Um, and I also had a lot of theories that built up over time about like there's this one weird note where Melville's like somebody you left your cane in my bed where did it go like I'll have to give it back to you later and I was obsessed with this like high school me like wrote three entire things about like where this cane went but the basic underlying thesis of this play is that like uh the summer before Moby Dick was published uh Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne were like living in the countryside as neighbors uh Melville whom Hawthorne called Mr. Omu or Mrs. Hawthorne called Mr. Omu because of his book he would come riding over and hang out with the fam and um the but then like suddenly Hawthorne just abruptly up and leaves like even though he had a lease and I think it was because he had some sort of tenant or landlord or neighbor dispute and he left two cats behind, but it was a very sudden departure. He left two cats behind. And he also like had this rabbit that he wanted to murder. It's a whole elaborate rabbit murder saga. But my thesis was that the reason uh, Hawthorne up and left so quickly, you see, was because he'd gotten this, uh, like Melville had gone over and declared his feelings for him. And that's the thesis of this play, which is all told through recollection. And it, anyway, that's, it, it ceased being a short introduction and became just an introduction, but that's what I thought was going on for sure. Um, yeah, so the cast is Herman Melville, Julian Hawthorne, uh, who's what, Hawthorne's son? Hawthorne's son. So Hawthorne, actually, he wrote this book called 20 Days with Julian and Little Bunny by Papa. He didn't intend it to be a book. It was just his diary of like, quote unquote, babysitting his own son, because that's the sort of vibe that Hawthorne had was like, he's the kind of dad who's like, I'm a, it's amazing that I had to do this. Um, and so th this is also, so Little Bunny was the rabbit that he kept trying to, he like gave the rabbit to the neighbors and they brought it back. Uh, it was not a happy situation with this rabbit that he kept trying to get rid of. Um, but so, yeah, sorry, that Julian is his son. <laughs> uh, we have young Herman Melville, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Sophia Peabody Hawthorne, and young Julian, Master Julian Hawthorne. So, um, we have uh, these characters and then these amazing stage directions open it. So uh, can I read the first paragraph and you read the second and third? Oh, but sure. I didn't, I didn't even highlight these. These are like, but yeah, we have, it's mostly stage directions and then just letters. Yeah, go, go, go to town. You read the first now. Lights rise slowly on Herman Melville's study. The time is 1883. He resides in the words of Julian Hawthorne, almost alone in the little house on East 26th Street. New York City. There is a writing desk upstage center with a straight-backed wooden chair pulled up to it. Doors upstage, right and left. 
The one up right is the door which opens onto the street. The one up left leads into the rest of the house. Down center is a small table and two more comfortable looking chairs, plush but relatively worn. Bookcases line the upstage walls. Downstage facing the audience is the suggestion of a window looking out onto the courtyard. Melville sits at the desk, back to the audience, writing. There is a half-full glass decanter resting rather precariously on the top of the desk. A half-empty glass stands beside it. As the lights come up, he can be seen drinking from the glass, setting it down, and taking his pen up again. A pause. Sudden feverish sound of pen nib scratching across the paper. Another pause. Melville sets pen down, finishes his drink, begins pouring another one. Stops. Sets the decanter back down, attempts writing. Slow, deliberate pen movements. Pause. Suddenly, violently crosses out everything he has written. Sets down pen. Pours self another drink from decanter, hand trembling slightly. Evidently, this process has been going on for some time. I love this. This is also clearly what, like, high school youth thought writers did. And it's, like, I, I mean, dramatically writing on stage with a decanter in hand um, and then scratching everything out violently. I mean... I don't know. I feel like it's the drama of the writer's life. Yeah. I mean, probably things were more dramatic before we had word processors because like just hitting delete all is like not as dramatic. Now, um, I do probably clutch my hair theatrically while whilst doing so. But yeah, no, I couldn't nearly attain this, this height of drama. So, all right, let me find this. Tell me what you highlighted. I see the scene with Sophia and so, young Melville. Yeah, that's, that is the first thing that I, I think there's a, it, it's a little on the long side, but it's got some real, it's suffused with something or other. There's, yeah, there's also other short ones that are highlighted subsequent to that. Let's do, let's try to do, let's do a scene between Melville and okay. Yeah. Okay. His birthday scene is pretty, um, yeah. Also, like for some reason, yeah, Melville in the play does not like the book that he has written. He keeps being like, "This book is terrible," which is certainly a take. Um, but yeah, I suppose we start reading the white blue stuff where Hawthorne, enjoying himself, raises glass. Um, yeah. So, think who, who should be Hawthorne? Who should be Melville? Up to you. Um, well, I think as our guest, you should play Melville. All right. All right. Um, Hawthorne. Enjoying himself, raises glass. To the Hawthorne. Melville, touching glasses with him. May it flourish in every hedge. Cheers. Hawthorne, cheers. Both drink. But congratulations are due you also, Melville. I seem to recollect a whale. <laughs> yes. Smiles. I don't suppose it will sell. You think it caviar to the general? Self-deprecatingly. Not so, not so. But I find it a most curious beast, this Leviathan. Not to every man's taste. Pause. Finishes his drink. It is odd what they see fit to publish. <laughs> I love that clearly 10th grade you was just like not really sure how people drink. No, wasn't sure how people drank. Wasn't sure how the publishing industry worked. Wasn't sure like much about the world was still veiled from me. I mean, yeah. I mean, my own literary efforts of 10th grade were prodigious and similarly uh shall we say presented um had their limitations so let's keep going to the next blue part uh the yes so Hawthorne yeah I'll be like you like the book let's talk of it then yes young Bubble. what thought you of my wasterly employment of the sub-sub-librarian I must confess, I somewhat lack your passion for whales. I knew the book was about whales, that's for sure. Young Melville has not been listening. It is a dreadful, sinful book. I'm almost ashamed of having written it. I begin with the most noble and pure sentiments, and always, always, I am dragged down to the Darbys. I don't understand you. I should have known you wouldn't, sadly. Today is my birthday. <laughs> so... I love this so much. It's so beautiful. Alex, if you want to like send me any more excerpts that I can post to the Moby Dick Energy Twitter, I would be delighted. And then I think what I, so in addition to the traditional end of podcast questions about, um, uh, you know, that, that we've discussed, I would love, you know, because this is a Melville Hawthorne heavy episode, 
and also because, you know, many of us are sort of isolated. Um, there's this wonderful letter from of the, the, the Melville letters to Hawthorne that I thought we could split that I think to me uh, really was a beautiful thing to read in this season of quarantine. Yeah. The, the letter is called The Secret Motto of Moby Dick, and it's three paragraphs. So I'll read the first, you read the second, and then the third is Perfect. just a, a sentence so I'll read. Okay. Letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne, June 29th, 1851. My dear Hawthorne, the clear air and open window invite me to write to you. For some time past, I've been so busy with a thousand things that I have almost forgotten when I wrote you last, whether I received an answer. This most persuasive season has now for weeks recalled me from certain crotchety and over-doleful chimeras, the like of which men like you and me and some others forming a chain of God's posts around the world, must be content to encounter now and then, and fight them the best way we can. But come they will, or in the boundless, trackless, but still glorious wild wilderness, through which these outposts run, the Indians do sorely abound, as well as the insignificant, but still stinging mosquitoes. Since you have been here, I have been building some shanties of houses connected with the old one, and likewise some shanties of chapters and essays. I have been plowing and sewing and raising and painting and printing and praying and now begin to come out upon a less bustling time and to enjoy the calm prospect of things from a fair piazza at the north of the old farmhouse here. Not entirely yet, though, am I without something to be urgent with. The whale is only half through the press, for wearied with the long delay of the printers and disgusted with the heat and dust of the Babylonish brick kiln of New York, I came back to the country to feel the grass and end the book reclining on it, if I may. I'm sure you will pardon this speaking all about myself, for if I say so much on that head, be sure all the rest of the world are thinking about themselves ten times as much. Let us speak, although we show all our faults and weaknesses, for it is a sign of strength to be weak, to know it and out with it, not in a set way and ostentatiously, though, but incidentally and without premeditation. But I'm falling into my old foible, preaching. I am busy, but shall not be very long. Come and spend a day here if you can and want to. If not, stay in Lennox and God give you long life. When I am quite free of my present engagements, I am going to treat myself to a ride and a visit to you. Have ready a bottle of brandy, because I always feel like drinking that heroic drink when we talk ontological heroics together. This is rather a crazy letter in some respects, I apprehend. If so, ascribe it to the intoxicating effects of the latter end of June, operating upon a very susceptible and peradventure feeble temperament. Shall I send you a fin of the whale by way of a specimen mouthful? The tail is not yet cooked, though the hellfire in which the whole book is broiled might not unreasonably have cooked it all ere this. This is the book's motto, the secret one. Ego non baptizo te in nomine, but make out the rest yourself. H.M. So the ego non baptizo te in nomine is um, something that Ahab um, says in this weird ceremony that appears later in the book. But he basically says, I do not uh, baptize you in the name of God, but in the name of the devil. Um, and that is apparently the secret motto of Moby Dick. But at any rate, that line, that line, um, I almost cried when I read it just because things have been rough, man. Uh, but that line, uh, come and spend a day here if you can. If not, stay in Lennox and God give you long life. But I'm quite free of my present engagements. I'm going to treat myself to a ride and a visit to you. Have ready a bottle of brandy. And doesn't that just... Yeah. That's so, like, cozy and wonderful. Well, it's just... And I also like the heroic drink and ontological heroics. Like, yeah. It's... That's... Yeah. Well, it's kind of like you want everyone to stay in their own personal Lennox and have God grant them all... And have God grant them long life. But I swear, there's many a person, yourself included, with whom I wish to have a bottle of brandy and some ontological heroics if and when we get through all this. Um, Amen to that. Alex, I have to ask you the, the customary question of this, um, this podcast and of which you have been forewarned. Were you to, to be setting out on a two to three year journey from Nantucket, what would you bring? I think, I know other people have said that they would bring books to read, but I think I'm also going to go in that direction. Uh, I feel like, now I'm currently trying to read War and Peace, and so I no longer have that as like a bugbear, but I have three copies of Madame Bovary, and I have read zero of them. I've made it like 70 pages in at most. 
So maybe I would bring that over. It would have not a three-year book, but I would, if I had no other choice, maybe I'd be forced to read it. Uh, that is the Boswell's Life of Johnson, but I'm almost, I, I made some serious progress on that. That, and I think I would bring uh, like some terrible snacks, specifically the uh, buffalo wing flavored pretzel chips from Snyder's, which are incredible and would run out within the first week of the whaling voyage, but which I would cherish a lot. Oh yeah, for me it's the honey mustard pretzels. Like those are addictive. I could probably wait. You're the person who likes the honey mustard ones because I'm always like, why are there always honey mustard ones everywhere? And there's never any of the buffalo chicken ones, which to my mind are like, it, it tastes like eating a real buffalo wing. It's uh, impeccable, and yet everywhere there's a honey mustard, and nowhere there's a buffalo. So you are you are the reason. I suppose I am. I just love that sweet honey mustard taste. I would probably. You know, that's valuable currency. I could trade it for snuff or whatever. In this circumstance, I'm a whaling whale hand, so I probably have a snuff addiction. Um, at any rate, yeah, yeah. Um, Alex, what a joy and a pleasure to have you on. And um, really, like, uh, <laughs> I'm really reminded of the value of all my friendships in a time that has been difficult already and is going to get harder. And, um, I'm so glad to have an old, an old shipmate um, along with me on this journey. Um, I knew you were going to say the word shipmate. Ah, that's yeah. I will, right back at you. It's it's been a pleasure hearing your voice. To, no, to all my to all my shipmates, I wish you um, ontological heroics. Um, I wish you a globular brain and a fierce heart. Um, I, you know, I say don't get on a ship unless, until you've seen the captain. Um, and I wish us all to stay, to, to have God grant us long life in Lennox. Um, and once again, this has been Moby Dick Energy. Moby Dick Energy. I want that Moby Dick. I want that energy. I want that Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. I want that empty. That Moby Dick Energy. I want that Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. Ooh.